Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? Well, it was my turn to host for Book Club on Thursday and I belong to a few book clubs, but this one was the Cups of Tea and Slices of Cake book club. Now, usually everyone creates these incredible homemade extravagances of cake. They're always amazing. And I realised very early on that there is no way I could compete. So I always try and get the most outlandish, uh, non-homemade thing I possibly can. I've introduced them to something called Planet Donut. I've introduced them to something where you get like a brownie sandwich between two biscuits. And I thought, what can I do this time? Aha, yum nuts. Now, I don't know if you've come across a yum nut, but it's a cross between a donut and a yum yum. And it's normally drenched in something chocolatey or whatever. And they're very, very tasty. So I drove to secure them early that morning. The lengths I go to, you know, it would have been, I was going to say it would have been easier just to make some cakes. But let's be frank, it wouldn't have been because I'd have poisoned them all and we'd all have ended up in hospital. So that wouldn't have worked very well. So anyway, Yum Nuts went down very well and they hadn't heard of them before. So that was good. I've got some, well, I'm very, very pleased today. I really am. I've got some great books to talk to you about. One, not so great. It was a book club book, of course. And also, it's the lovely Facebook group for the podcast, I tell you. So I'll come on to this later on, but just to give you the joyful gist, someone contacted me. They were having a bit of a time and they were finding it hard to read. And instead of me just spouting my words of wisdom, which have no wisdom in at all, I thought, I know, let's go to the hive mind of the podcast group on Facebook and see what everyone suggests. And my goodness, you delivered you lot. You really did. They are sensational answers. They are kind and caring and compassionate. And I'm sending you all a hug and do join us on Facebook. You'd be ever so welcome. Anyway, We'll come to that at the end. Let's talk about books. What books, Philippa, you may ask, are you reviewing today? Well, I am reviewing Make Me Clean by Tina Baker. And Tina's going to come on and talk to us all about that book. Then our second interview 
is a bit different. We've had last year, we had some of the indie publishers come on. Well, today we've got Drew Jerison from Viper Books, who published Tina's book, Make Me Clean, among many other super books. And just keen to talk to Drew about the work that he does, what books they've got coming up that might be of interest, all sorts of things. We've got that as well. Then also I'm going to review The Innocent Wife by Amy Lloyd, White Oleander by Janet Fitch. I'm thinking Fitch, but I don't know. Let's have a look. Fitch. Yes, there we go. And finally, The Bees by Laline Paul. Now, the three books I've just mentioned are ones that have been out for some time. And I know some of you are looking more for books that you can get from the library or that are a bit cheaper to obtain. So those ones are have been out for a while and are more gettable than others. So there we go. Now, let's get started straight away. So the first book, Make Me Clean by Tina Baker. Well, let me read you the blurb on this. Maria is a good woman and a good cleaner. She cleans for Elsie, the funny old bird who's losing her marbles, with the terrible husband. She cleans for Brian, the sweet man with the terrible boss. She cleans for the mysterious Mr Balagon with the terrible neighbours. But if you're thinking of hiring her, you should probably know that Maria might have killed the terrible husband, the terrible boss and the terrible neighbours. She may also have murdered the man she loved. She didn't set out to kill anyone, of course, but her clients have hired her to clean up their lives and she takes her job seriously, not to mention how much happier they are all now. The trouble is murder can't be washed out. You can only sweep it under the carpet and pray no one looks too closely. Mm, very good. Well, let's go to Tina now for that first sentence. Maria takes a cloth from the bucket and wrings it, knuckles white, water red. The hot tap scolds her skin as she rinses and rings and rinses and rings again, attempting to steady herself with repetition. Her hands are strong, stronger than they ever have been, calluses along the palms. When Maria first started cleaning, she wore rubber gloves as if she were a princess, a thought that makes her want to both laugh and cry. Oh, excellent. I enjoyed this book so much it's so different and that's what we like and I just you know when you get a book and you just know you're going to enjoy it well yes very good anyway enough about me we're going to go and talk to Tina I have to say I try and keep interviews to 15 to 20 minutes and it's fair to say Tina and I chatted for a lot longer however what Tina had to say both inspired me, moved me, challenged me, everything. She she was just brilliant to talk to. I thought, hey, hang on, doesn't matter. Let's just have a longer interview. So make yourself a cup of tea or coffee, preferably not if you're driving at the moment, and listen because, well, it's just uh, an interview I won't forget in a hurry. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Tina Baker to the podcast, whose latest book is Make Me Clean. Tina welcome. Thank you so much. The one reason I decided to do this was the word biscuit. Because you're obsessed <laughs> by biscuits. You're a woman after my own heart. I'm obsessed <laughs> by biscuits. That's very exciting. I will have to wait till the end to ask you yes, this I question, know. but that's got me on the the biggest tenterhooks possible, knowing wanting to know what your biscuit of choice is. But anyway, okay, let's before biscuits, let's start with the book. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? 
So Make Me Clean is about a cleaner, a domestic cleaner called Maria. And I think all my books are me, really. I have been a cleaner. Uh, my dad was a window cleaner. I used to have my own window cleaning round. Uh, my mum was a cleaner. So her background was fairground and she got pregnant with me and then had no qualifications apart from being on the coconut shy. Uh, and that doesn't really qualify you for very much. So she became a cleaner in shops. So me and my brother cleaned with my mum and dad. We cleaned as a family the floors of Tesco's and supermarkets in my hometown of Colville in Leicestershire, which is a former pit town. And you learn a lot about people by the way they treat cleaners. And some people are lovely. Some people pretend you don't exist. Some people take delight in wheeling their filthy trolley wheels over the bit you've just done. And that's my background. And at school, I were, apart from being called Gypsy because we lived in a caravan, I was also called Scrubber quite a lot. And again, it's like some people treat you like the lowest of the low. And I'm still, even though I'm now a lady author, very working class in my affect and my heart. And I like writing about people. I've not really read very many books about cleaners to be honest and you think about it if you invite a cleaner into your home they know all your secrets they're literally you know if you're not at home they can go through your knicker drawer and they're often the worst paid and you know you just think of what might happen and so all my characters I think are morally ambiguous and Maria's a good person that horrible things have happened to so that was the, the nub of the idea, the knocks of the idea, the seed, is I want to write something about a cleaner. And then my, one of my favourite telly shows was Breaking Bad, of a good person becoming bad. And that's what I wanted to do. So I suppose my interest is psychological. I'm not that interested in people jumping out of helicopters and going on submarines and fighting evil geniuses because there aren't that many of them around. Um, I'm very much about what's scary to me is what is in the domestic arena, you know, domestic noir. Um, so that's how it started. And then there is a little bit based in the gypsy community. Now, people assume I'm a gypsy. I'm not. Um, it's very interesting if you come from the traveling community. There are gypsies, Romany gypsies. There are Irish travelers. There are fairground showmen. Um, and there are new age travellers and bits in between. And I'm from a showman background, which is like my grandma and granddad had, as I say, a coconut shy. My auntie had dive bombers, kiddie rides. So even though my character marries into part of that community, it's not exactly mine, but mm. it's mine enough. Uh, so, yeah, they're bits I'd not really read of before. So I like to do something a bit different. And with all the that you went through as a child and being called names and that can go two ways that can either push you down and you can't get back up from it or it can give you that sort of grit and resilience that you then can use later on did it did it do that for you it must have been very hard 
Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. So my dad had to teach me to box because I was in a fight pretty much every week for years. And then when my brother joined school, my brother always used to joke that I beat up the people who were beating him up so I could beat him up myself. So I'm a real scrapper, which I'm not proud of, but it was just the way it was back then. So that gave me grit in one sense, but... I remember the shame of being shamed for liking school. So it was a big deal. I mean, um, the first person in my, in my family to sort of do exams, let alone go to university, because my dad was clever enough, but he had to leave because his dad was dead and he had to get a job at 13. And my mum never had enough schooling because we were moving around on the fair. And there just wasn't that sort of state intervention to make sure you went to school then um, in that community. So she never really learned to read or write comfortably. She was always a bit ashamed herself and found it really hard. So they were very encouraging. But when I went to school, it's like the word SWAT was as bad as gypsy scrubber. Do, do you know what yes, I mean? Yes. And um, poor teachers who were used to the kids never doing homework. I used to give him reams in English. You know, I used to write novels every week. But I did feel ashamed. I felt um, the worst was when I uh, entered a Cadbury's chocolate writing competition and somebody hit me over the head with a chair because, you know, I was a swap. And they loved it when I didn't win. They literally mocked me. And I can remember that feeling of being hurt because I'd not won the competition. You know, as a child, you think, I'm going to to win. And literally being in a horrible physical fight uh, because of it. And it's like, well, that probably stopped me for years. So even now, there's a tiny little bit which I do not like about myself, which took me years to put the word writer on my passport. For years, so I've done 30 years as a journalist, it was journalist. And, and when I renewed it, I put the word writer and it still feel, makes me feel emotional. Um, so I'm a member now of the Society of Authors. When the author magazine comes through my door, I, I literally want to weep every time it comes because it feels like I'm not good enough to be in their club. So there are, there are remnants of it even, even now that there's not just an imposter syndrome, it feels like a shame of who the hell are you that you think you can do that? Not feeling good enough, feeling that those people won't want me, but it's been lovely. And I get really emotional of how the writing community has been to me, particularly when I was shielding and in lockdown, that was my outlet. And literally I've never had one writer be a cow to me you know, male or female, they've always been so supportive. Now, we all have that thing when somebody else wins a prize or sells more than you or, you know, has success. Uh, My thing is it will never happen for me. I'm not good enough. But I'm sure some people have that twinge of why her, not me. But it's never felt like that. And it's always about you. It's never about the other person. I really believe that, that if you feel... Why have I not got Kim Kardashian's arms? <laughs> you, you know, it's like, I'm not good enough to have a bum like that. I'm obsessed at the minute with the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And it's like, I want a swan and a miniature <laughs> pony. But, you know, I don't have a moat in my flat, so it wouldn't be practical. But, you know, it's like, not really, but it's that eyes bigger than your belly thing that you want that. 
but then you get all the things that come with that. So if you're a huge success, people are looking at you sometimes and the pressure's on. I would feel the pressure that I've got to continue doing that, you know, at that level. My answers are really long. I'm aware of that, Philippa. No, but it's fascinating. So I think because I'm only just getting back in the, out in the world, which sounds mad, but I had a complete meltdown in lockdown and I'm still not mentally out there yet. So I'm still the one in the mask uh, on the bus. Nobody else, 80-year-olds are without the mask and I'm still the one in the mask, terrified. But it's getting there. It's getting better. It was such a horrific time, even for those of us safely at home, you know, mentally, it it did so much. You're not on your own and you shouldn't feel. I'm a big believer in just saying the worst things because it takes some of the power out of it. And I felt lucky, you know, I did all my work online. I did all my keep fit classes via Zoom and I could write when I could write again. There was a period I couldn't even read and I just literally lay on the sofa until four o'clock in the morning sobbing. Physically, because I've got dodgy lungs, I ended up in hospital recently with pneumonia and a collapsed lung, but I've never had COVID, go figure. You know, so I did do the shielding because at that time, if I'd have had that, when the hospitals were under that pressure, I would have felt awful. I felt awful anyway, because I was in a ward with much older, more vulnerable people. And I just kept saying, sorry, I'm sorry my lungs collapsed. Sorry. Uh, So, you know, I'm the one who doesn't want to go to the doctor or hospital because I feel the pressure on the NHS. I understand that. And we'll talk about the book more in a minute, but just... Oh, yes, the book. I forgot the book. (laughs) Yeah, we will. Don't worry. But to go back to that time at school when you were being teased as well for being a SWOT and, you know, loving the words and writing, when was the first time you wanted to write? Can you remember... You must have been very young. Yeah, in the caravan, I was, um, it won't surprise anybody listening to the podcast, I could talk before I was one. I never bothered to walk, uh, but I was yabbering away doing nursery rhymes and stuff. And it's it's part of that, I think. So my brother's a year and four days younger than me. So when he came out, um, I then had to find something else to fight for attention and writing was the thing. And I remember like wanting to read cereal packets and going into the shops and pointing, what's that word, what's that word? And then when I started to do my letters, so my mum was brilliant because she never had, I mean, she was a troubled woman, but in that respect, she was absolutely brilliant. She'd never learned really to read or write herself. She was dead keen that we did it because it, you know, gives you options. And I used to have a piece of paper and a pencil and I'd write letters down and say, does that say something? Does that say something? And the greatest triumph of my life was when I was three and a bit and I accidentally spelt the word Zeta, which is my auntie's name, Z-I-T-A. And I felt like the queen of the world and they were dead impressed with me. She spelt her auntie's name. She must be a genius. And I was so thrilled with that achievement. I think that was the nub of it. And then very clearly at school, uh, first year at school, so I must have been five, and I wrote a poem about um, a snail and they put it on on the wall. And again, I felt like the queen of the world. And I got a buzz about it. And it was escapism. I mean, you know, there was some grim incidents in my past um and it was as soon as I could read I was off and I read everything I read 
children's books, but also I would go into the library in Colville and I'd read all the adults' books. So when I should have been choosing my books, I'd snuck around. And then my dad had books like The Carpet Baggers and, you know, completely inappropriate, age inappropriate. He wasn't a big reader, but he had the books. And he'd also got books that he'd been given as a kid. So I was like, I couldn't get enough. And then I was reading really, really fast. And I'd sort of gone through the library at my school. And I'd almost finished the library down in the Colville precinct. And so luckily then we were cleaning the family planning clinic. So I read all of that as well at a very inappropriate (laughs) age. All the leaflets. I didn't know all the words, but I looked them up. It was great. (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about the the book and Maria. I mean, she's such an interesting person. You mentioned earlier, you know, there's some of you in every book. Yeah, my name was going to be Tina Maria. So until my dad pointed out, it sounded like a drink. Um, So, yeah, and it was going to be my confirmation name as a Catholic, but I lapsed by then and it never happened. But, yeah, Maria is a cleaner and she's she's sort of a working class background and fell in love with the wrong person. And my so I've been married three times, engaged six or seven technically because I didn't have a ring with one of them. But, you know, I have really been (laughs) some rubbish, rubbish relationships And at that tender age, it can literally ruin your life. I mean, my mum, if she was alive, would have said, well, my dad ruined her life, but neither of them are alive, so they can't blame each other anymore. So he blamed her for getting pregnant as the fair passed through. He'd recently got engaged and he'd been dumped. So he was on the rebound. She blamed him for getting her pregnant. And she was not ostracised, but she was looked down on by the travelling community because she married out. And my dad's lot looked down on her because she was a gypsy. So it was like, you know, torturous. So I think that sort of, that comes through in the book, that she marries out of a settled community. We are now settled people, but where therefore flat is. Um, or, you you know, you've got different pejorative words for gypsies and people who are not gypsies. So her family almost disown her because of that, and it's an abusive relationship. It just happens to be, I never intended to write it in a certain way, but that's how it happened, because my mum and dad were fighting all the time. So he ripped the door off the caravan. She put, tried to put a stiletto through his hand so he couldn't play the bass. Because he played the bass. You know, so it was, it was physical fights. So I wanted a bit of that because it's in a caravan. It's like a cauldron, a pressure cooker. So, you know, nice middle-class people can, you know, go off to the country. You know, uh, ordinary people can go to a different room. There's nowhere to not fight as in a caravan. So that was the the point of that bit. So she marries off and horrible things happen uh, involving drugs. And again, I've had a bit of a wobbly experience with drink and drugs myself. So my theory is anybody can be a murderer in the right circumstances. We've all had incidents of road rage or somebody hurts your animal or your child and you would fight to the death. But good people need that inciting incident something really horrible to go wrong or drink or drugs or a bit of a combination with both and that's where the first incident really happens 
And then as a lot of women find, you know, if you've been in an abusive relationship, what you've then got to survive on your own, that's when she becomes a domestic cleaner. And other things happen, which are, I think, that grey area. So she's not like Killing Eve. She's not a psychopath. She does the best she can, and she's very protective of one of the people she cleans for. And Elsie has dementia. She's an older lady who she cleans for, and she's much more than a cleaner. She's carer cleaner. And this was written in the middle of lockdown, and I work for several charities like Age UK um, and other charities where I live now in Islington, working, teaching, keep fit to older people. And a lot of those people were very vulnerable, you know, people in wheelchairs, people who had Alzheimer's and dementia. And a lot of those people died. And I was heartbroken because I was doing free Zoom and Facebook and that. None of those people had got access to that technology. Mm. Um, and it gutted me because I knew it was happening. And, and, you know, I've been into the care homes and done seated exercise for them. And I had no way of finding out because of that rule that you no longer could keep people's individual numbers, data protection. So I, I was grieving, also because I don't have kids, this sounds mad. How can I feel motherly towards a 92-year-old? Well, I do. Yeah. And I felt I'd lost a huge part of my family, as well as being dead scared for myself. So Elsie is an amalgamation of those people, and I bloody love her. Um, you know, she's sparky, she's funny, she's got a history. She's just not one of those... I think a lot of young people don't see older people as individuals. They'll probably see their grandma, uh, but they won't see, you know, sort of individuals on the bus. And my grandma was closer to my grandma than my mum. And uh, when she died, again, a bit of my heart went. And she was hilariously inappropriate. When she met my first husband, she says, I won't remember your name, my duck. There's been so many. <laughs> and that was her sort of blood. Yeah. <laughs> I loved her, but my dad didn't get on with her. So it was like, you know, families are nightmares. I think most of the most of the horror and most of the violence will come in that family scenario, unless you're very lucky. <laughs> yes. But it strikes me that because there's so much of you and your history that feed it, that feed elements of this book, was it quite was it very emotional as you were writing? I'm emotional about anything. I've cried at the advert where they gave the mobile phone away. So my emotions are very near the surface. I have always felt I've not got a layer of skin, you know, that normal people have. So I get very angry very quickly and very emotional very quickly. So, yeah, all my books. I mean, the first book, Call Me Mummy, was about the fact that I couldn't have a child and extrapolated from that what would happen if I stole one. And believe me, um, after the IVF field and my body was awash with hormones and grief, um, you know, I could have gone that way. You know, it's almost like a psychosis of grieving. So that wasn't easy to write. And then Nasty Little Cuts, another joyful read, uh, was a, it's a fight uh, bet between husband and wife to the death. Now, obviously, I've not gone that far, but I've been in physical fights with blokes I've been with. And um, just before Christmas as well, and Christmas is one of the worst times of the year for me, because I think there's so much pressure and you can't escape into the telly because it's all the magical Christmas. Mm. And I cry at the Christmas adverts every year as well. 
So, yeah. Uh, all of my books have been emotional because I just think I wanted something to say. I don't want to just write stories. You, you know what I mean? I, mm. I think people who are cleverer than me, whose minds are working better than a postmenopausal brain, are better plotters and have the twists. And the only way I can write is from the heart. So it's not from the brain, really. And then it has to get edited. And, and like, that's the terror for me because I've, here's my heart, here's my soul, it's all on the page. And then the editor goes, this makes no bloody sense. When's this supposed to be? And then I have to do a lot of rewriting because I don't plot. I'm writing what feels would happen next. And some of it's a bit of a surprise. And it takes me down alleys that then a whole chunk has to disappear. So it changes a lot in the edit. And some of it changes, obviously, for the better. And some of it I feel I've lost. But it makes sense to me. I need a calmer uh, mind that's looking at it from a different place because I'm too deep in it. I'm in the mess and the mire. Mm. And when you'd finished, did did Maria stay with you or were you able to say goodbye to her? Um, it's weird because I would have said they all stay with me. So particularly like mummy, that is a psychotic version of myself, uh, desperate to be a mother to such an extent you would steal a child. That has numbed slightly. So in, you know, but that's now three, four years ago and when it was first written five years ago. So I think it, you do let it go. There's something about putting it on the shelf as a book. So Maria's still closer to me in some ways. But yes, I think I can let them go now. Does writing help your mental health then, do you find? Are you no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, of course it does. And talking about stuff. I made the decision quite early on, and a very close friend of mine says, you know, because it's all raw stuff, and he knew, you know, in the first one with Mummy what I've been through. Loads of people have been through that and worse with knobs on, and I felt all I can do is tell you my experience, mm. even when it hurts, and be as honest as possible. So in that way talking about it and writing about it and getting it out there really helps but it's not therapy yeah and also I think I've got to acknowledge now at my advanced age that I, I'm a high functioning mess you know so I can keep a job and I can do the writing and I can chat to you and I love it but also there are going to be moments when I'm I'm literally on the floor sobbing and that's probably not going to go away and, and that also is an outlet because I used to fight sobbing in the past, you know, like I was quite alpha male <laughs> brain of like, I've, you know, particularly as a journalist when I was working with people and I felt it was my, I was on a bound to drink a lot and sleep with a lot of people because that's what journalists did then. And also you turn up for work no matter what. And I mean, I was live on air three days after mama died and, you know, nobody knew. Because and being jolly and making jokes about the soaps, because that's how you did it. So to give myself permission that there are going to be, I'll still do the job, but after I've done the job, I come home yeah. and sob. So I'm a real workhorse because of that. I think that's my background as well. Like Maria, I'm always scared about money, always have been, always will. And always scared that nobody will ever ask me to write a book or talk about a book ever again. So I'm always on the next one, you know, pushing forwards. 
And I love the way you approach marketing your book as well. You are the only author I've seen who's really taking it to heart. You know, <laughs> rubber glove, you got your marigolds on, there's a mop out or a, or a broom yes. or something. You get 10 out of 10 for it. I love it. And, and it's not for everybody, you know, and people who ask how you market your book. The truth is I started doing that in lockdown and shielding. So the very first book, when I saw that physical book, and I can't believe I turned down a deal for just an ebook because at that point I desperately wanted to hold my book. You know, I was nearly 60. I'd waited to nearly 60 to get that book published. I needed to feel it. I'm quite a kinesthetic person. And I climbed on top of, at the time I had a pink car with eyelashes and I climbed on top of the car in the middle of lockdown, six o'clock in the morning, because at that point I thought if people breathe on me, I will be dead. And I sang the circle of life badly, you know, with a book <laughs> on top of the car. And I don't even know where that came from, but literally I had a dream of that. You know, I had a dream where that happened. And it was like, I am so scared if I can make myself do that in an evening gown at six o'clock on Sunday morning, I can do anything. And the same of going down to the Waterstones when it opened in a mask, literally hadn't been out the house, but in a mask, in my wedding dress to sign a book. So that's where it started. And then it was like, I need to laugh. And my husband pushed me around a supermarket as I'm standing in a trolley, you know, when the book came out in supermarkets. And I've literally got my kit off, you know, like calendar girls holding my book. It's not for everybody. But unboxing videos, I just think I've done them for other people as well. It's not just for me. So it's, you know, if anybody wants me to do a daft unboxing video, as soon as I've got the idea, I'll do it. I'm turning up to my friend's book launch, um, you, you know, the freeze, uh, dressed as a penguin, um, because that helps the dressing up and, and it's a freedom of making fun of myself and it takes the sting out of the dark thing. You know, it's a way of dealing mm, with it. Yes. And if it works, well, it works because it, it works. works. Yes, it works for you as a writer. It works for us as readers because we just enjoy, well, enjoy is the wrong word, but yeah, we do enjoy your books because they keep, they grip us. And yeah. It's a lot of humour. I mean, it's they sound bleak, but they're not because... That's one good thing about like working class Midlands Northern humour. It, it's a way of coping. And the same with journalism. I have been in newsrooms where literally the worst horrors have happened. Now, I've never done hard news. I mean, not for years. You know, I had to cover some. I've had to interview people whose children have died. And I did a couple of years on a satellite programme called The Agony Hour. So you can imagine what that was like. So I've interviewed, it's not all my experience, I've interviewed people who've been through the worst horrors. But after you have interviewed them and you've lived through that with them as an interviewer, there are always really dark jokes in that newsroom. And it's a way of coping. It is literally a survival mechanism. I am trying to lighten. It's a really weird distinction. Absolutely. And it's a way of coping as it's well. It's a way but of coping. Another way of coping is the consumption of biscuits. And we come on to the last question here. So, yes, I ask everyone, and it is the most important, forget the book, what biscuit is powering the writing of your book? So I worked in a biscuit factory. Uh, I cleaned in a biscuit factory and I was also on the line. And they said to me, 
you will grow out of the consumption of chocolate digestives. You will get to a point because you can eat as many biscuits as you like on the line. After a month, I was eating so many profits that I was taken off in disgrace and put on the arrowroot line. <laughs> Even arrowroot, when it comes out warm, is just delicious. So um, if I was still there, I would be 40 stone because I've got no breaks. So chocolate digestives. But... It has to be chocolate digestives with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. It can't be just a chocolate digestive. Or sometimes like I have come home from work and had it with milk. But chocolate digestive, so you've got your chocolate, you've got the saltiness of the digestive. I could talk for an hour on biscuits. <laughs> this is absolutely super and this is what we're, what we're here for. So uh, that biscuit has stayed with you. You haven't been... Yeah taken in by any <laughs> modern biscuit you're sticking with the I have tried every modern biscuit it has to be said and the only biscuit and I'm sorry to admit this that I'm not that keen on a wafer biscuits my husband I've married somebody who's not only a feeder but somebody who's a chocoholic like me and he's addicted to the Marks and Spencer's cookies with chocolate on one side so they've got chocolate chips and chocolate and then there's another one with chocolate chips, chocolate and caramel. And never have I, never have I ever <laughs> eaten one biscuit. Yeah. I always finish the packet. And so does he. And he completely understands that. But also, it's like the most comforting thing. So comfort, no one ever comforts celery. <laughs> it's been so wonderful to talk to you, Tina. Honestly, you are an inspiration and just being so open and honest about everything. Well, Philippa, so, you know, I'll get emotional as well if you keep going on that, so don't do that. I love talking. I love talking to people who get it as well. So thank you. You know, and I know this sounds gushy if you're listening. This, I mean this, you know, I genuinely love doing this. So thank you. No, it's great. I just can't wait to see lots of people buying Make Me Clean and reading it and loving it. Tina Baker, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, one more interview and more book reviews. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So next we're going to talk to Drew Jerison from Viper Books. As I mentioned earlier on, last year, the end of last year, I had a couple of indie publishers on and I just wanted to open the doors and expand that more to some of the bigger, smaller, all the variety of publishers. And Viper was one that stood out to me because they do consistently bring out great books. So let's talk to Drew and hear more about what goes on at Viper. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome today Drew Jerison from Profile Books. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I am really excited about this. Let's start with the absolute basic. There's Profile Books, there's Viper Books. What's the difference? Explain to us. I'm publicity manager at Profile Books, but I work across all of the various lists and imprints that we have, including Serpent's Tale, which is kind of more literary fiction, Souvenir Press, which is kind of health, lifestyle, self-help, and of course, Viper Books, which is our crime and thriller imprint and I work quite closely on on that as well as working on some of the kind of like non-fiction on profile but we work quite closely as a team within Viper to create campaigns all our authors and their brilliant books and I'm here today I think to talk mainly about Viper. Yes I mean they've got some amazing authors Tina Baker we've just been speaking to of course Janice Haller but there's so many how do you go about the marketing their books? Tell us a bit about what does your job involve? So my job really is to kind of build profiles to make sure that authors are kind of, you know, being reviewed, that they're being interviewed, that they're being invited to festivals, that they're getting to events, that they're meeting their readers. So really, my work really starts once the book is ready. Miranda Dewis, she kind of leads Viper. She's our publishing director, and she's got a really good eye. So she's shaping the list in terms of um, deciding what to publish. She's kind of bringing new authors to the list, working on the schedule for the year. And then really, when it gets to kind of my department, which is publicity, um, alongside my colleagues in sales and marketing, that's when we kind of, you know, that's when it's getting it to the readers. But the list, you know, it's there's something for everyone, I think, at Viper. We've got kind of some really strong psychological thrillers, do a bit of literary horror, historical crime, whodunit. So like no book is, is really the same. And I think it's a really special list because of that. And the variety makes the job really exciting. It must be relentless, though, because you do a big campaign and you, you know, you get success for an author and then you've got another book and another author to market. There's no downtime. I mean, we're still quite a small boutique list. So we are publishing around, I'd say, 10 books a year, which is kind of around a book a month. Every author, every book is kind of given a bespoke campaign. You know, we're, we're quite 
fortunate in that we're quite a close-knit team and that we kind of together we have the time to really focus on a on a book on an author to give that the best you know chance that it's got to really make it work like we're not kind of publishing loads of books each month and competing you know internally every book is given the right amount of space and attention it doesn't feel relentless some campaigns last longer than others some books really surprise you and really take off then you're you know kind of managing maybe an author tour that can run for a whole year. You know, we're an indie publisher. It's kind of boutique list. And I think that definitely helps in kind of managing that workload and making sure that everything is given, like, yeah, the best chance um, and the best shot possible. And presumably it's helpful if your authors have their social media profiles and can do a lot of promotion themselves. Yeah, that is important. Um, and I think it's a really good space for authors to engage with readers if that's what they feel comfortable doing if that's what they enjoy doing some authors are kind of better at it than others some authors enjoy it more than others in kind of thinking about promotion it it kind of does come down to the book and the author and what that book is maybe trying to do or what it's trying to say and you know my job is to kind of think beyond the book that's in front of me to think about you know has this author got something that might like to write about for a feature in a newspaper? Um, is there kind of a personal story here? Was it inspired by something that they've read? You know, Twitter and social media is, is one space that I think, you know, an author can kind of have fun with if they, if they feel comfortable. But it's really kind of my job is a bit separate to that. And it's about kind of finding t- traditional spaces, you know, within the media um, getting them onto podcasts like yours, um, you know, kind of getting them in, to events again. Um, so I wouldn't say, yeah, I don't think, you know, I think if you're comfortable doing all of the, if you're an author and you want to do all of the kind of the, 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 the tweeting and the Instagramming, that's great. But also like a big part of the campaign is, is what we do together um, in, you know, securing national press, national radio, appearances at festivals so it's more the author doing their social media if that's what they want to but then you are involved in much more of the bigger promotions and all the work that goes yeah and we also do have a team here who do work across the viper social media you know if an author doesn't necessarily want to set themselves up on twitter they're still kind of like the viper machine that's still doing all of that promotion across our own channels there's there's a lot kind of happening behind the scenes working with bloggers in working with influencers that an author doesn't have to get involved in but equally like it's you know if, if it's something that they enjoy doing and readers really do love kind of being engaged with on twitter by the authors that they love then you know I'm, that's that's the great thing is it harder these days to market a book that the author's a debut author or is it harder if they're an existing well-published author I don't think one is harder than the other. People do love something, you know, that's new and shiny and um, launching a new writer is exciting. And I really, I really love working with debut authors. But I do think it comes down to the book um, and the author themselves. It's kind of got to be something that readers want to read. And I think the author has also kind of got got to want to put the work in beyond just writing the book. So, you know, thinking again about publicity, when I finally get my hands on the book and kind of finally get to work with that author, we're thinking about things 
or themes within that book that might be newsworthy or, you know, talking about where the idea for that book has come from or whether they were inspired by something they read or by, you know, another writer, or whether there was any research that they've, you know, done that's of interest. And that applies to both, you know, debut authors and established authors. You've got to ask yourself, like, are readers going to want to read this? Coming back to my job, it's always thinking beyond what's on that page. Um, is there going to be interest from reviewers? Is there going to be interest from, you know, features editors or producers? Yeah, de- debut authors can do that, but equally so can authors who are already established or who are kind of relaunching or rebranding. It, but I, I think it definitely does come down to the book that's that's in front of you. Presumably the job is both easier and harder than it used to be both because of the same reason that there are so many more festivals these days and ways of getting information out you want people to know about the book but it's getting in there and managing it and keeping track of it all events take up more time than I think anything else so a campaign now feels that it does last slightly longer because there are kind of a lot of festivals to get authors to, um, bookshop events to get authors to, kind of scheduling all of those and then keeping on top of those, that that takes quite a bit of work. Planning for those, you know, thinking also about got an author on the road, what else they might be able to do in a, in a city that they're visiting and what other bookshops can they pop into to sign. So the kind of the, the logistics, that's quite a big job in itself, um, I would say. But there's also, you know, Thinking about the list as a whole, you know, we're not just pitching um, individual books as, you know, as they're published. There's a lot of work that goes into setting those campaigns up, but there's also a lot of work that goes into setting up the list as a whole for a year, meeting journalists throughout the year, meeting producers throughout the year, kind of getting a kind of um, first impression on what is of interest you know, kind of working out from that initial feedback where we think we might have a big hit, where we think we might need to do a little bit more work. Beyond those individual campaigns, there's a lot of kind of thinking about, yeah, Viper as a as a whole, making sure that all of those books get the best in that they, they possibly can. What do you love most about the job? I think what I really love most about the job is when you kind of do all of this planning, when you kind of get to know an author, when you've established a really good relationship with them, when you're kind of able to collaborate with them and share ideas and to be able to take all of that, pitch it to the targets that you might have in mind and see all of that coverage start to line up. I think that's really exciting. And then when that translates into you know, readers talking about the book, um, seeing kind of like the excitement build for something online, seeing all the kind of excited tweets, people people basically saying what you what you were kind of hoping that they might say. Okay. And that's that's what yeah, that's what um, makes the job really exciting. Turning something into a conversation starter for sure. What do you think would surprise us most about publishing and all the work that you do? What do you think we don't know? Oh, God. Uh, I think what sometimes surprises authors is um, to learn that there are a lot of people working on your book. So, you know, you kind of start with an editor, but then there's a rights team who is selling rights to your book um, to other publishers, perhaps, you know, around the world. There's a sales team, which is, you know, pitching your book to, uh, to to stores and booksellers and Amazon. So like the, the selling process is its own thing. Then you've got obviously the design team, the production team, the, the making of the book. Um, and then you get to us and it's kind of like marketing and publicity, which is talking about the books. Uh, I think authors sometimes are a little bit surprised 
by just how many people are involved in that, involved in making a book happen. And just, you know, with publicity, I think friends of mine who don't work in publishing are surprised to learn that it's not just like parties and press releases. <laughs> like, it's, 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 it's a hard job. It can be quite full on. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into making a book a success. Yeah, and it's not all taking place at a party drinking warm white wine. Like it's, <laughs> it's a lot of emailing, a lot of pitching, and a lot of chasing, a lot of work. So did you always want to work in publicity? So I kind of took like the typical route in, like I, you know, I did English at university um, and then I did a few internships. Like publicity was the the job role that kind of stood out for me, the one that I thought I'd do, do a good job doing. Like I, I did a lot of kind of performing as a youngster and I thought I was going to kind of work in theatre. But, but, you know, to be honest, like books have always been the constant. Like I've always read, um, you know, I've always got a book on the go. I do love books and I love reading. Yeah, I think it, you know, publicity plays to my strength and I and I do get a real kind of buzz from seeing all the kind of excitement for a book when I've kind of felt that excitement for, for a book myself. Let's look at Viper and have you got, say, three books that you could tell us about that we need to be looking out for and that you're excited about? Yes, I do. I am really excited about a book we're publishing in September by Joanna Wallace called You'd Look Better as a Ghost. This is a really dark, laugh-out-loud thriller about Claire, who is a part-time serial killer, and she sees people as ghosts before they die. She is also in a bereavement support group after the death of her father, who she really loved, but she absolutely hates everyone she meets. She hates everyone in that support group. She hates people in the street. She hates um, kind of people that she meets in supermarkets. Her killings tend to be of people she literally can't stand or have annoyed her somewhat. So it's very spiky. It's very funny. But we meet Claire and she has just carried out a killing and she may have messed up slightly because someone is watching her now. Someone is on her case and is she about to be found out? So that's a really exciting one that we're doing. Oh, yes. I can't wait. I love the title of that. I mean, the title alone. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it yeah, 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 it's great. Brilliant. I can't wait to read more about that. Okay, that's book one. What, what's your book two? Book two is a book called Delicate Condition by Danielle Valentine. We're publishing that in August. And this is a kind of new Rosemary's Baby gothic horror about an actress um, who's going through IVF and she starts to suspect that someone is trying to stop her from having a baby. So appointments in her calendar start to, they start being moved, Um, medicine is lost and people don't believe her when she's kind of saying, you know, these things are are happening and I'm not, I don't know why they're happening. And then finally she does get pregnant and even more unusual things start to happen. Some of them are really quite quite horrible and her symptoms become genuinely terrifying and she starts to wonder what it is exactly that's that's growing inside her oh my goodness I want to read that one now (laughs) (laughs) it sounds (laughs) horrific and yet amazing it's fantastic it it really is yeah it's yeah it's quite something and that's delicate condition in August okay you've given us two absolute stonkers what's what's your third one (laughs) and my third one is a new Janice Hallett and this one's a Christmas special called uh the Christmas Appeal so for fans of 
Janice's first book, The Appeal, you know, you're going to absolutely love this one. She takes us back to Lower Lockwood and to the Fairway Players, the amateur dramatics group that, you know, made famous in The Appeal. They all come together to put on a production um, of Jack and the Beanstalk, a pantomime. Everything goes horribly wrong when a dead Santa turns up and ruins the show. And it's classic Janice again. It's very funny. It's very smart. Another slippery whodunit. And it's completely addictive. A perfect stocking filler um, this year. (gasps) I am all over that. That is, I can't (laughs) wait for this new book of Janice's. They all sound absolutely super. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's great. Well, we come to the last question, Drew, and this is always the, the crucial one for this podcast Mm -hmm. so we have to ask it to you as well what is your biscuit of choice so i had a good think about this um (laughs) i'm more of a crisps fan salt and vinegar okay fair enough we'll try and still talk to you um yeah but i did i so i do love an oaty biscuit or something or some so i don't have a particular fave but i do like a rough oaty biscuit or something chocolatey that i can dunk into a hot drink okay yeah so i think yeah, a good a good messy biscuit is probably what I'm most into, you know. All about the crumbs. But I but yeah, I think I take crisps over. Okay. So if we're if we're just humoring you then for a minute with your crisps, mm. your salt and vinegar crisps, which bag would you go for? What's your favourite salt and vinegar brand? Oh I do I quite like the kettle, salt and yeah, salt and balsamic vinegar. Um, that's a good one. Honestly, Drew, it's just been so interesting to hear all about Viper and the work that you do. And these books are sensational. So we all need to just keep an eye out for more and more Viper books. So Drew Jerison, thank you so much. Thank you. It's always interesting to hear what people do in their work. And those three books, my goodness, just cannot wait. I'm all over those. Those are brilliant. Now we've got the three other book reviews, but before we do that, I am going straight in to talk about the wonderful Facebook group. As I mentioned earlier on again, I was contacted by someone who asked me to only refer to them as M, who said, I've had a rough time of late and usually reading helps, but I can't get into a book at the moment what should I do? So I went to the Facebook group for the QuickBook Reviews podcast and said, right, hive mind, come on, what would you suggest? What would you say? And I'm going to read out all the suggestions because they are all wonderful. So Jenny said, when I've been stressed or upset, I can't seem to concentrate enough to read a new book and I either go back to an old favourite or watch an easy box set to have a little mind break. Tracy says, try something short so it doesn't seem such a mountain to climb or a book of short stories, even a favourite book from childhood. Nikki says, maybe try an audiobook. Sometimes listening rather than reading can help. Derek says, I'd second the audiobook recommendation, a series you can just relax into. Perhaps Jodie Taylor, Ellie Griffiths, William Shaw, Ben Aronovich, depending what genre you like. And revisiting older books you've loved is always good. Katie said, I'd try an audiobook and listen to it while you have a nice bubble bath or do a jigsaw or adult colouring books. They're very therapeutic and will help you relax so you can take the book in. Claire says, I'd probably go back to an old favourite. So it's comforting, but also doesn't require super focus because you know the story. 
And then Pat says, all these suggestions are great. I'd go for a familiar book or author that you like or that you can count on for a laugh. When I'm stressed or ill and can't concentrate, I go straight for PG Woodhouse's Jeeves and Worcester books. Sue says perhaps an old friend of a book or audio book, maybe a page at a time or 10 minutes. Take your time. Hope it helps. Alison says, I'd also recommend audiobooks, which are currently getting me through a tricky few months. Andrew Cotter's two books about Olive and Mabel have become my go-to listens for tough days and nights. Plus, it's the sort of non-fiction you can just dip in and out of if you do drift off. It is worth reading reviews of audiobooks, as not all narrators suit the book. And you don't want to have what should be a pleasant listen ruined by getting irritated with accent, pronunciation, weird voices... No such problem with Andrew Cotter. Your local library may offer an app for ebooks and e audiobooks, which is a good way to dip in. Debbie says difficult times means light hearted books, easy reads, no triggers or sadness. The take a breath books. See if you've read any in the past, and like most of us, suggest an old favourite, which is very comforting. So the combination of light and familiar, hopefully, will be more manageable and enjoyable. And Laurie says sometimes starting a new series can help, knowing there are books to look forward to that include characters that you love immediately, that become your friends in a way. Recently, the amazing Christopher Fowler passed away. He was the author of the Bryant and May series. The books always lifted my spirits. Sometimes just browsing for books can help. Wishing you well. Oh, my goodness, you lot. You are just amazing. Isn't that wonderful? I think all the suggestions I could possibly make um, are there. The only other thing I'd say is something that I tried just yesterday that I had been talking about wanting to try for a while. And I got the book and the audio book at the same time. And I read and listened to it. I had the audio book on quite fast to keep up with my speed of reading. But it really helped me get into a book when I was thinking, I'm not going to be able to read this. I'm not in the right zone for reading. It really helped just seeing the words and hearing them at the same time. It does mean it could be expensive. I appreciate that. So if you can get the audiobook, as someone suggested from the library, the book itself from the library, you're winning. So that's just something else. But um, just go easy on yourself and uh, take care. And I think we're going to have to make this a feature maybe once a month. I don't know. So if you've got any bookish problems, let me have them. You can email me at quickbookreviews at outlook.com. You know where I'm on Instagram, Twitter and everywhere and Facebook. And yes, let's see where it goes. It's all very exciting. Anyway, on to the next book, The Innocent Wife by Amy Lloyd. 20 years ago, Dennis Danson was sentenced to death for a brutal murder in Florida, but there were flaws in the case, questions hanging over the prosecution, suspicions of miscarriage of justice. Sam, an English schoolteacher, finds herself drawn into an online community obsessed with the case and with the 18-year-old who tearfully protested his innocence. Who was the short man that police never found? Why did they fixate on Dennis so early? What happened to the missing evidence? Sam writes to Dennis and Dennis writes back. They become friends. She visits him. They fall in love. They marry. And at long last, a confession from a real killer seems to prove Dennis's innocence. He's acquitted, declared a free man. Sam is overjoyed, but part of her starts to doubt Dennis and the way he seems to change once released. She pushes it aside. After all their husband and wife, till death do them part. 
Oh, my goodness. This was very good. Right. Let me do the very first sentence for you. Chapter one. The prison was a vast grey concrete monstrosity surrounded by a razor wire top chain link fence. On the way in, Sam passed a plaque embedded in a large stone that read Department of Corrections, Altoona Prison. And then under a Disney-esque archway, there was a sign with big plastic capital letters, Altoona Prison. The few palm trees scattered around the edges of the compound made it look even more surreal, like a film set. I really enjoyed it. It kept me guessing. I was wondering what was going to happen. It surprised me. I listened to it. I got it on the library app as an audiobook, and I thought it was really good. Yes, I'm sure it was a Richard and Judy some years ago. And I don't know why I haven't read or listened to it before now, but I did, and it's thumbs up. Now we come on to the next book, White Oleander by Janet Fitch. And let me read you the blurb on this one. Astrid is the only child of a single mother, Ingrid, a brilliant, obsessed poet who wields her luminous beauty to intimidate and manipulate men. Astrid worships her mother and cherishes their private world full of ritual and mystery. But their idyll is shattered when Astrid's mother falls apart over a lover. Deranged by rejection, Ingrid murders the man and is sentenced to life in prison. It's an unforgettable story of Astrid's journey through a series of foster homes and her efforts to find a place for herself in impossible circumstances. Right. OK, well, let's do let's do first sentence before we do anything else. And then I'll take it from there. The Santa Annas blew in hot from the desert, shriveling the last of the spring grass into whiskers of pale straw. Only the oleanders thrived, their delicate poisonous blooms, their dagger green leaves. We could not sleep in the hot, dry nights, my mother and I. I woke up at midnight to find her bed empty. I climbed to the roof and easily spotted her blonde hair like a white flame in the light of the three-quarter moon. I listened again to the audiobook. It was narrated by Oprah Winfrey. And I wouldn't have picked this up if it wasn't for a book club. And I really enjoyed it. Now, I would say it is dark. It is depressing. There's a lot of bad things that happen to people that aren't bad. There's bad things that happen to people that are bad. But are the bad ones actually bad and are the good ones good? You, yeah, There we go. So if you are looking for something that is going to give joy in your heart and make you feel happy... Don't go near this book. But if you're looking for something with considerable substance that's quite depressing, I'd say it's great. Uh, really good. Good for a book club if you if you want sort of meatier books. And the fact that the audio book is good as well, you can read it that way. So, yes, a thumbs up, but with reservations. Go carefully. It is not a hoppity, skippity, jumpity fun type of thing. And that's that. So the final one is Laleen Paul the Bees. Now, this was the book club choice that we talked about on Thursday when I supplied the Yum Nuts. And, well, I had high hopes for this book because it was dystopian, I was told. It was um, talking about bees, obviously, and that's why she named it the bees. Who'd have thought? But, well, let me read you the blurb. Enter a whole new world. 
born into the lowest class of her society, Flora 717 is a sanitation bee, only fit to clean her orchard hive. Living to accept, obey and serve, she is prepared to sacrifice everything for her beloved holy mother, the Queen. But Flora is not like other bees. Despite her ugliness, she has talents that are not typical of her kin. While mutant bees are usually instantly destroyed, Flora is removed from sanitation duty and is allowed to feed the newborns before becoming a forager, collecting pollen on the wing. She also finds her way into the Queen's inner sanctum, where she discovers secrets both sublime and ominous. But enemies are everywhere, from the fearsome fertility police to the high priestesses who jealously guard the hive mind. And when Flora breaks the most sacred law of all, her instinct to serve is overshadowed by an even deeper desire, a fierce love that will lead to the unthinkable. All right, let's do the first sentence of this one, and then I will tell you a little bit more about what I thought. Prologue. The old orchard stood besieged. To one side spread a vast arable plain, a dullard's patchwork of corn and soy reaching to the dark tree line of the hills. To the other, a light industrial estate stretched towards the town. Between the dripping trees, the remains of a path still showed. A man in early middle age kicked at the tall nettles and docks to widen it. Neat in her navy business suit, a younger woman followed. She paused to take photographs with her phone. I didn't like this book at all. I'm sorry. It wasn't for me. Now, there were people at book club who loved it. There were some eights out of tens, which are hard to come by with that book club. So uh, what do I know? It made me realise that if I don't believe what I'm reading, I'm not going to enjoy it. And I know we're talking about fiction books, so should you believe it? But yes, I feel I should. I feel it should be written in a way that really makes me believe it. It's, it's about bees. And it's about so much about bees that I can't eat honey now. It's put me off it. And I've only had four pots of honey delivered a few days before. So that's great. Oh. I just felt, yeah, clearly bees are very interesting and I'm all for that, but it was too much. I didn't get it. I didn't like it. I wanted it to be over. It was a quick read, give you that, but it just didn't light my fire. As I say, it lit other people's fires very much. There were bright burning fires for some, but for me, no, it just didn't do it. Why do I read these books for book club? Why don't I just say, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't read it and just go for the cake? That might be a better thing because it's not often there's a book that I am completely over the top in love with, especially not recently. Well, it's making me reevaluate all my life choices. Anyway, there we go. I have taken up so much of your time. I'm sorry it's been a long one today, but with Tina's interview and with the feedback from the book club, there was a lot to cover. So I, I think it I hope it's been really worthwhile. And let me just do a quick recap on what we've covered today. So Tina Baker has come on to tell us all about her latest book, Make Me Clean. And we've had Drew Jerison from Profile and Viper Books telling us all about the work that Viper do, uh, his role and these glorious three books that are coming up that I cannot wait to read. I've also reviewed The Innocent Wife by Amy Lloyd, White Oleander by Janet Fitch and The Bees by Laleen Paul. And I've talked to you about the 
response from the Facebook group and what they suggested for the message from M, who was having trouble reading. Those those are your books. Those are your thoughts. Those are your everythings. Go out in the world and read books, but come back to me. <laughs> come back to me next week because, yeah, I've got some really good books to talk to you about. So just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. 2 new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.